Well, uh, today, I, uh, after my, having my breakfast, I read one of my talking books. I listened to Mass on, on uh, TV. I played my piano. I had my, my dinner. And I listened to the classical music on, uh, on WFCR. And then I listened to uh, your 413 from, from 3 to 4. And now I'm listening to All Things Considered. I'm calling from Manchester, Connecticut. Thank you very much. Yesterday in the fabulous 413, we asked what our listeners were doing with their snow day. And thanks to Robert Burke for sending us that voicemail. We also got texts from yesterday because, again, we live in the future and now we can get texts. So this one says, today's snow day, I am writing my neighbors a thank you postcard for shoveling my driveway. Thanks, Kalisa and Monty. Stay cool. And Ian Hodgson in Greenfield, Mass., writes, I love your show. Tonight you asked what we did in our snow day. Well, a little background. My earliest memories were of me sitting in on the folk band my parents were in in the early 80s. I was three to five years old. I grew up listening to John Denver, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Dave Mallett, and Gordon Lightfoot. In my late teens, the late 90s, I got into Queen. He continues, then I went to the New World Festival in Randolph, Vermont, around that same time. Heard groups that played traditional Quebecois music. I've been expanding my horizons in a way. Two years ago, I came across a group called Heilung. They're from Northern Europe. Their music slash rituals are based on ancient texts and in one case, coins found with inscriptions. They describe their work as amplified history, no politics involved. They've learned pro-Germanic, proto-Norse, and other iron and bronze age languages. When I get home from work at night, I turn on my smart TV, select YouTube, and watch their videos. I dance around in my living room, and my two rescued dogs join in. I was lucky enough to see them in their U.S. tour last year in Worcester, and you should check them out. Thank you for your new program, and I'll be watching Heilung tonight to warm up. That was Heilung that we were playing, and thank you so much to Ian from Greenfield. You can email the fab413 at nepm.org anytime or text or call us right now at 800-639-9120. Especially if you have questions for Congressman Jim McGovern for tomorrow's show, send us those texts or those emails. Or we're in the middle of a fund drive right now. If you've donated to the NEPM fund drive, let us know why you support public media, even if it's in the hopes that you can donate enough to bring classical music back during this hour. <laughs> I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith, and this is The Fabulous 413. Happy Women's History Month to you. And also with you. We have a wicked cool array of amazing women to talk with today. Let's start with some music. Sunny War is a bit of a phenom, a folk punk musician who came to blues late. Her heavy lyrics and light guitar style have caught the ears of many, including Alison Russell, David Rawlings, and more some of whom make an appearance on their seventh album, Anarchist Gospel. She'll be coming to Northampton this weekend as part of the Back Porch Festival, and Kalise is a super fan of theirs. Kalise sat down with her for a chat. So I'm sitting here with Sunny War. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me and have, have a quick chat. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. I read that you started off basically in punk. So I wanted to ask you about how punk and folk work in your music, because it makes a lot of sense to me listening to the things that you make that you started in punk and punk is is kind of a, a big influence on your lyrics. 
um, in high school, the same time I was playing in, in punk bands, that's when I really started getting into blues and just like a lot of folk. But at the same time, I was like in my school, I went to a music school. So I was like studying jazz guitar, learning about different guitar playing altogether. And I was like more open to just hearing all kinds of guitar playing. But then I just got obsessed with blues and just like fingerstyle blues. And I somehow segued into just doing that finger style guitar stuff primarily because I, I love that style of playing not that I don't like blues I just like the idea of reimagining how what people could talk about with that same style just Something to be just to match like today I guess because there's definitely a lot of people that are definitely playing kind of like older styles but then they try to match that lyrically and I feel like like a lot of yeah. people they'll be singing about being down at the crossroads and stuff and I'm like you really can't really authentically sing about that in 2023 like it doesn't make sense just makes sense like to you you have some really interesting, very inspired cover choices on this latest album of yours, Anarchist Gospel. Why did you choose them? The Ween one, I think it's just because that's just like my favorite breakup song. And at the time, it, I was feeling like every lyric of that song. I love that you have children swearing on it because every time I hear a song where there's children saying or singing things that you probably won't hear children <laughs> saying or saying without you know some parents being very angry i'm all in approval so when they're it got to that real. song on they're not real kids no <laughs> we couldn't get it for that very reason and it was like also turning into this whole like to get to get singers to get children singers you have to go through a union and then there it's like it's like more complicated to hire children because at first it was going to be real kids and then it turned out to be like super complicated to get like a, a children's choir for like an hour and i was like man <laughs> like so so we used the alvin and the chipmunks on three grown men we just put nice. that effect on it basically just sped up the tape and it sounded like it sounds real it definitely sounds real i was convinced <laughs> but i wish it was real kids you think you can just hire some kids, but you can't. It's hard. <laughs> I know. Don't they need college money? Yeah. Like, like, just show up and sing some notes. It'll be fine. <laughs> but then you have the Dion Ferris song out there, which is like one of my favorites. And I love your arrangement of it. Like, I love the pull-offs that you have on guitar, which is the technique where you use your fingers on the fretboard and you, you pull them off to create several tones. And it's just, it's such a nice arrangement. And with all of your collaborators, it's just a really good reinvention of that song. They say I'm hopeless, hopeless. How did that one? Like, cause me and Chris, who's on that song, we have our band, Warren Pierce. Like right before COVID, we were planning to record an LP together. And then like that kind of separated us. And then we were sort of still working on songs remotely, but that was a plan that I wanted us to do in our band. I never got to do it. Cause Warren Pierce is me and Chris. And then it's also our friend Jared who like plays bass and he produces everything. And everybody was just super paranoid in 2020 to get together. We just didn't get to record 
I still was like, well, I still want to do that idea. So I knew that I wanted Chris to sing that song. And then I just figured I finally got the opportunity to do it since he was already singing it on so many other songs on the record. It was like, oh, yeah, what about that song that we never got to do? You have some really cool collaborators on this album. As I speak with Sunny War coming to the Back Porch Festival in March, Chris Pierce and Allison Russell and David Rawlings. Like, have you been playing with them in in Nashville and beyond? I know, I know, you have Warren Pierce with Chris Pierce, but Allison Russell and and David Rawlings coming along—that's new. Well, the Allison Russell, I played a couple shows with her, and then I was one of her guests when she did the Newport Folk Festival finale show. I had asked her if she would sing on something like a couple of years ago. So then finally, when I got to Nashville, I asked her again about it and then she was down. But Dave Rawlings, that was because the label had had a list of people to potentially maybe work with, but he was more being considered as a producer. But then I was like, if you could ask him if he would play on something, like, you know, ask him, I don't know. But originally he was only going to play on one song on Hire, but then he just stayed and played on two more songs out of nowhere. I didn't meet him until he came to the studio. Doesn't sound like it. Sounds like all have been playing together for a while. It's, it's pretty tight. And he played on the Ween song, and that was the best part to me. Oh, dear. Like a 90s dream, you know? Yes. <laughs> For sure. This new album of yours, Anarchist Gospel, what did you like most about recording it? What did you enjoy most about the process of of bringing it to life? I think I just liked, it was definitely the fastest I've ever recorded anything because like there were session players. So everything was like, we did like five takes of everything. Like this many songs has to get done today, which to me I thought would be scary, but it was actually, I kind of liked that. We're going fast and we're trying to get through everything. That was exciting to me somehow. I think my favorite my favorite part was when the singers came in just because I felt like it, everything came to life. That's how we got the name of the album. When they were singing on whole, singing the choruses, that's when I was like, that's gospel. But it wasn't until they came in and that's when I felt like this is a gospel album. <laughs> nice. before that you're a little uncomfortable with singing as a as a guitarist who is also uncomfortable with her singing voice i identify with that have you grown into your style of singing and how you sing and gotten a little more comfortable with it i'm more open to humiliation which i i guess is like being more comfortable I'm not as scared to try stuff and to just be like, either it's going to work or it's not going to work. Where I think before I was more shy about trying stuff, but I'm still learning about singing for sure. 
because I don't get it. I still don't get it. Like, I know a lady in L.A. who, she was a vocal coach. She would be like, you're not breathing from your stomach. You're, like, telling me where to where to breathe from and stuff. And I'm like, it makes sense, but I'm like, I don't get how you control. I don't feel that. Like, I still don't understand. They know more about breathing. And I'm like, I don't get how you can dissect that in your mind how to breathe differently like i don't get it like chris can do crazy shoot his voice but it's a whole like i'm recognizing that that's a whole thing like singing is is a whole thing and i don't really <laughs> plan on really learning nothing like that but, <laughs> but i definitely res- i respect it though more things real say you better touch not to cry but if you think you're true with that and i'll say that you will lie it's what you have to do like you did on the street must have thought i'd be true what you're doing is working so like don't worry about it and i love that you're willing to experiment with it because like if you're not playing around with it and having more fun and figuring out newer things to do with your art doesn't it kind of die? You got to be ready to be hum- embarrassed and try stuff. Yeah. You, this is your second trip back to Western Massachusetts. You came for the Arcadia Festival. That's I know fair. I was there, but I don't know. Sometimes I get confused if it's too many shows in a row. I don't know where I was. That's No, that's <laughs> fair. You Your tour schedule, and it is so packed. Like, you're everywhere all at once constantly i i hear from other people that like touring drains them a lot but for you it seems energizing is that true no i hate touring but but i'm better off being on tour than being at home because i because i'm a psychopath so it's like it's just better it's better for me to have a schedule because i'm like nuts Like, it's just better. It's like, if somebody just tells me what to do for a couple months, it's better than what I do for a couple months. I I identify with that. And it's hilarious because when I mentioned to the folks at Signature Sounds that I really wanted to chat with you, they mentioned like, yeah, she came into the festival, like no one saw her come in and no one saw her leave, but clearly she was on stage at some point. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't even remember. I don't know. No, apparently you're a ninja also. <laughs> so... Oh, yeah, I'll get out. I get in and get out. Because I don't like hanging out at the festivals that long. If I've already been out for a while, then I'm Mm -hmm. starting to get burnt out. And I really just leave just to go sit in a parking lot for a couple hours. (laughs) You don't want to be around a crowd all the time. Like, it gets too much. Because even just playing shows, it's like a lot of social interaction, which at first is cool for the first, maybe the first couple weeks. But then you start feeling like, okay, this is like, this is not even a natural amount of socialite. Like, this is like over the top. And it gets, it does feel draining in a way. Because you want to be polite, but sometimes it's like you're saying the same stuff over and over again every day of tour. Because you're talking to new people, but it's the same conversations over and over again. And it can get like weird. And then you're just sitting in a car all day. So then you're already cranky because of that. It's like, well, I was just in a car for seven hours. Now I'm trying to be friendly with this stranger who happens to be saying the same thing yesterday stranger was saying. You know, like, just start you start going crazy a little bit. But it's yeah. still a better crazy than being at home. 
<laughs> I understand and I appreciate that for sure. Thank you so much for for hanging out with me and and being open to just chatting about coming to town and playing and all of your I awesome. And I don't hate festivals. I love festivals. <laughs> <laughs> the only like so you tour. <laughs> You do her a lot, but the only time I get to see you here is like when you come to festivals. <laughs> I'll be in the best mood. And I will tell people to stay away from your car in the parking lot. Don't go bother her. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for, for chatting with me. I hope this was fun for you. All right. <laughs> nice talking to you. Thanks for the ah. fantastic album. It really is. It's a delight. Thanks. Thanks to Sunny War and the folks from Signature Sounds for helping make that conversation happen. You can see Sunny War at the Unitarian Society on Sunday, March 5th as part of the Back Porch Festival. Tomorrow on the show, McGoverning with McGovern. Email thefab413 at nepm.org. You can text or call us at 800-639-9120 if you have questions for the congressman, Jim McGovern, on tomorrow's show. And it's our first fun drive. Please donate to support NEPM. Let us know why you support public media and this station. If you donate and let us know specifically at 800-639-9120 or emailing us at thefab413 at nepm.org, I will impersonate Kai Rizdahl from Marketplace before the show is over. I've heard it. It's pretty spot on. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. It's a new book by Lydia Moland who will be in person this Thursday, March 2nd at 7 at the Odyssey Bookshop. Lydia Moland is a professor of philosophy at Colby College, former radio producer, and friend of Jill Kaufman from the NEPM News. I don't know if that I need to make that full disclosure uh, or not. But you, uh, Lydia Moland, have brought to light the life of an amazing 19th century woman who has some strong ties to Northampton and has the same first name as you do, Lydia Mariah Child. In some ways, Lydia Mariah Child was the Martha Stewart of her day before mm. she became a radical abolitionist. But still, her most famous achievement is a song rather than her <laughs> abolition work. Tell us uh, about the song that Lydia Mariah Child wrote and is still famous to this day. Yes. So somewhat later in her life, she took um, a slight break from her abolitionist organizing to write other kinds of things. And it was during that time that she wrote Over the River and Through the Wood, which every American school child learns and which has been stuck in my mind for about five years for the entire time I've been writing this book. <laughs> I feel um, bad for you. That, it's, it's not like it's a great song. No, it's, it's not. Yeah. Over the river and through the woods to grandfather's house we go. And she would have been appalled, not surprised, but appalled that this was the thing that she was most famous for, given that she dedicated her life to fighting racial injustice and for the rights of women and for the rights of indigenous people, um, none of which is really foregrounded today when people do know about her. I mentioned that she was sort of the Martha Stewart of her day, and it's sort of like that strange transition Martha Stewart have from, had from being on television to going to jail and then being like <laughs> best friends with Snoop Dogg. Hey, Martha, pass me that big, easy-reach lighter in that bowl. Bowl of strawberries. Except Martha Stewart has never been as radical as Lydia Mariah Child was. Tell, tell us about that transition from the Martha Stewart to the radical abolitionist. Yes. So in 1829, Child published a book called The Frugal American Housewife. 
And this was a book that was full of recipes, but also house cleaning tips and also thoughts about how to stuff a mattress with feathers or how to treat a sprained ankle or cure dysentery. And it was also suffused with political principles. So she was very clear that Americans needed to be self-sufficient if the United States was going to be a democracy and not just revert to being an aristocracy since we just fought a war to try to end um, that particular form of government. So she was really, throughout the United States, famous, a kind of household name in American kitchens. Housewives late into their middle age would remember how she helped them become adept at having their own kitchens functioning and taking care of their children and everything. And so she was a trusted and beloved name in literature until she converted to abolitionism, which was in 1830 a still absolutely radical commitment to the belief that slavery should end immediately and without compensation to enslavers. Most white people, including in the North, were not remotely near that kind of commitment. People were you know, content to think that slavery was probably a bad thing, but was probably necessary and was probably going away anyway. And besides, agitating about it would threaten the country's unity and economy. But in 1833, Child published a book called An Appeal in Favor of that class of Americans called Africans that was just a full-scale denunciation of slavery and of all of the terrible arguments that people had been using to either not care about it or to support it. So that was really just too much for her readers. They couldn't handle this switch from someone who was helping them know when a pig was fully roasted uh, to <laughs> telling them that if they didn't fight slavery, they were not living up to American principles. Um, and she lost her readership. She was ostracized. And she and her husband fell into poverty as a result. That didn't stop her. She kept fighting for racial justice uh, for the rest of her life. Speaking with Lydia Moland, who will be in person on Thursday, March 2nd at 7 at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley, speaking about her new book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life, a perfect reader for Women's History Month. <laughs> I was curious in reading your book about her connection to the Harriet Jacobs narrative and some of the claims that she had rewritten it or how heavy handed her editing had had been. Could you talk a little bit about their relationship and maybe who Harriet Jacobs was to begin with? Because her story is really fascinating and sad. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yes, so Harriet Jacobs was born enslaved in North Carolina um, in 1813, and she remained there until her early adulthood when she did escape. She hid in her grandmother's attic for seven years because it was never safe enough actually to get her out of the state. Um, but finally, at the end of those seven years, she uh, escaped to the North, got to Philadelphia, and then uh, went further into New York, and at a certain point decided to write her story. And this was something that several uh, formerly enslaved people were doing, most famously Frederick Douglass, but there were almost no women who were writing their stories of enslavement. So she wrote it out. She tried to get it published. Publishers were very wary about this. There was a lot of explicit sexual harassment accounts in it, um, and also Obviously, people in the North were still mostly unwilling to listen to what real enslavement was like. But there, she did find a publisher who said, I will publish this if you get an introduction from Lydia Mariah Child. So Child was a famous enough abolitionist at that point 
that uh, people trusted her and wanted to wanted her to vet um, this story. So Child enthusiastically agreed to do that. She did everything she could to promote Jacob's book um, and get, find it a publisher. And then, as you say, there are some real questions about the amount of rewriting or editing that she did, perhaps with Jacob's approval. But did Jacobs really feel like she had a choice? Um, as marginalized as she was by her radicalism, Child still had a lot of power that Jacobs didn't. And there have been a lot of scholars who have felt like Child did more than she should have, and that this was another example of a white woman co-opting a black woman's story. The story gets worse because after both of them died, because the book was published pseudonymously, People forgot that Harriet Jacobs had even existed, and since Child's name was on it, people started to assume that it was a novel written by Lydia Mariah Child. And it wasn't until the 1980s that someone did the research that was necessary to confirming that, yes, Harriet Jacobs existed, yes, she was enslaved in North Carolina, yes, she was hidden in her grandmother's attic for seven years, and yes, she wrote this book on her own um, with child's editing help. So it's a fascinating snapshot of questions about power dynamics around race and gender and class um, that I think helps us understand so much about all of those questions in our own moment as well. It reminds me quite a bit of the recent discovery of the rewrite of Sojourner Truth's uh, Ain't I a Woman speech. Yeah, there are really interesting parallels there, including how both of these women's stories were rewritten in order to be more palatable to white audiences and specifically to the white women whose sympathy was crucial for them to be able to get their message out um, as well. So as I say in the book, insofar as we now also insist that people tell their stories in ways that are palatable and acceptable to us, we replicate some of the harms at the core of those stories as well. Speaking with Lydia Moland, who'll be in person Thursday, March 2nd at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley, talking about her book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. Last week, Kalisa and I took our listeners on a radio tour of the Ruggles Center in Florence. And there's a whole room there dedicated to Lydia Mariah Child and her relationship to that other famed uh, abolitionist, uh, David Ruggles, and the village of Florence. Tell us about Lydia Mariah Child's relationship to our area, Northampton in particular. Yes, this is one of the most fascinating chapters in her life. Um, At a certain point when it became clear that arguments alone were not going to convince Northerners to oppose slavery and Southerners to end slavery, Child and her husband, David Lee Child, decided to move to Northampton to farm sugar beets. The idea being that if they could economically undermine the cane sugar trade, um, so cane sugar was was grown on plantations um, with slave labor, that they could erode the economic advantages of slavery and it would just stop being economically profitable and therefore end that way. So they, David Child moved or visited Europe. He learned how to do uh, how to farm sugar beets and turn them into sugar in Europe. He came back. He bought all of the machinery. They moved it all to Northampton. They tried that for about three years. It was successful insofar as they did make sugar from beets, um, but they also went bankrupt. And this was an extremely painful chapter in their life together. 
at the point that they went bankrupt, they actually separated for about 10 years. Um, they did reunite and um, spent their last couple of decades very happily together. But so, yes, they and they, they really laid the foundation in some ways for the abolitionist community that came there later, including David Ruggles and Sojourner Truth. Um, so it's a wonderful example, both of the sort of ingenuity that was necessary to fighting slavery and also the ways in which even when something fails short term, it can have long term beneficial effects. Another in- interesting thing about Lydia Mariah Child's time in Northampton in the middle part of the 19th century is, and even today, Northampton fashions itself as a, a very liberal community, but the liberals of Northampton weren't as accepting of what Lydia Mariah Child had to say even then. Yes, and that was um, a real lesson for Child, I think. So they moved to Northampton expecting to find an abolitionist community only to find that people were much more entrenched in the status quo and in especially in not upsetting powerful people. So it turned out that the child moved into a building very close to someone named Mr. Napier, who had moved to Northampton from the South and had himself been a former slave auctioneer. And he was very powerful in one of the churches in Northampton, which meant that anti-slavery messages were just not allowed in church and that the childs were routinely made to feel that if they agitated too much against Mr. Napier, they were going to upset him and therefore you know, upset the, the social order. Things became much more complicated when a niece of Mr. Napier's came to visit from the South and brought an enslaved woman with her, who child then tried to help encourage to take her freedom to emancipate herself by staying in the North. And the letters between about that in Child's correspondence are just fascinating, the ways in which she tried to help this woman, but also the ways in which I don't think Child even fully appreciated what a wrenching decision for that woman it was because she had children still enslaved in the South. So in the end, this woman whose name was Rosa decided to return with her enslavers to the South because she could not bring herself to abandon her children. Um, And that was considered a defeat for abolitionists like Child. Uh, And the Napiers then went around saying that, look, slavery can't be that bad because, look, this woman, Rosa, chose to return to enslavement, even though she was given this opportunity for emancipation by one of the most notorious abolitionists around. So interesting that at that time, intersectionalism still is a problem. Yes. (laughs) Having to make a devil's bargain and then using the devil's argument against uh, slavery. (laughs) The more things change. Yeah. It's (laughs) a terrible story in a fascinating book, Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life, a new book by Lydia Moland, who is a professor of philosophy at Colby College. It's a perfect book for Women's History Month. For any month, for, for any all month. the time. And you can talk to uh, Lydia Moland in person this Thursday, March 2nd at 7 at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley. Thank you so much, Lydia Moland. We'll, we will pass on uh, our greetings from you to your friend Jill Kaufman uh, in our Please news do. Department. She sits <laughs> right in so our much. office. So, yeah. <laughs> I envy you that. I envy you that. Over the river. Coming up, the NEPM debut of The Word Nerd. Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. We'll take a tour of the Dictionary Building in Springfield coming up in the fabulous 413 on NEPM. Khalees, 
you live right around the corner. I do. From the dictionary. I know. It's awesome and fascinating. We're on Federal Street in Springfield, right across from Stick, which is the home of Merriam-Webster. Come find the dictionary. Don't come find my house. Yeah, don't come find your house. <laughs> Merriam-Webster is not a woman named Miriam with a last name Webster. It's Merriam-Webster. And for years, I have been obsessed with the fact that the dictionary of record in the United States of America is in our backyard in the 413. And I just so happened that years and years ago, one of my neighbors in Franklin County, I found out, was an editor at Merriam-Webster, Emily Brewster from Greenfield, who, on my previous show, was a regular guest talking about all things words, from the word of the year to trending words to words they're watching. It helps us to literally define the discourse in this country, and it's all emanating out of our backyard in Springfield. And we are in the hallowed lobby of Merriam-Webster with none other than Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. You're going to give us a tour. I am. You are at 47 Federal Street. Merriam-Webster moved into this building in 1940, and uh, it was one of the first buildings on this block, and the number of the building is 47, and that was chosen by... Merriam-Webster, which was then called the G&C Merriam Company, because of Noah Webster's 1847 dictionary. Noah Webster is a name that people know and associate with the dictionary, but briefly, if people don't know who Noah Webster was, who was he? He is the founding father of American lexicography, who was uh, from Hartford, Connecticut, also lived in Amherst, and actually helped found Amherst College. And he wrote the first American, full-size American dictionaries of the English language. When when he died, the George and Charles Merriam Company, George and Charles Merriam, purchased the rights to his dictionary, and they became the uh, publishers of his dictionary and then new iterations of his dictionary. So Merriam-Webster's lexicography is still, in fact, built very much on the foundation laid by Noah Webster. And we're here in the lobby, which is where you were waiting when you were about to get interviewed to become an editor here at Merriam-Webster. Your perception of what this place and this dictionary was all about was different than reality. Yes, it was. Like it wasn't I, a dude in a powdered wig and like a beard <laughs> interviewing you? No, no, no. Could it be a dude in a powdered wig? There's a lot of pictures of people like that around here. Yeah, they were all dead by the time <laughs> I got here. I have never seen somebody in a powdered wig in the offices. Well, I of happened to bring one with me. <laughs> I wish those things would come back then I could, I wouldn't have to deal with my hair situation. That's the ghost of See, I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> we're making fun of their powdered wigs and they will have none of it. Well, let's go look at some cool stuff here. At Merriam-Webster in Springfield. Oh yeah, there's a G&C Merriam sign, an early sign from the Merriam brothers. There's a plaque here that mentions adding 5,000 words to the dictionary. Did that happen every time? Like every time that there was something added or a large portion added, did they have like basically a kind of placard announcement about it when it came out? Yeah, kind of. It's a really big deal <laughs> to put out a new dictionary. I mean, 5,000 words is a lot. Especially when you're laying it out not on a computer and hit print on, you know, the machine. <laughs> That's right. These days we can make major changes to dictionaries in a period of months and it's not, um, I mean, in theory we could make it much sooner than that, but, you know, it's, it's so much easier to do. But then they, they were dealing with, you know, actual plate changes, these metal plates where they would have to rearrange letters and it was, you know, a really big deal. This is Noah Webster 1806 dictionary. It's small. It looks like it's like six but by so three. But so is the print. Oh my god. Check out oh, the print. Whoa. Do people in the it olden days easy. have better vision? I, I don't know that. I don't know I couldn't that. read one word of that dictionary. Yeah, it's um, it's very 
tight. Now, the amazing thing to me about this dictionary and all of Noah Webster's dictionaries, and speaking as a lexicographer who's been working as a part of a team of lexicographers for 20 years now, is that he did this almost entirely single-handedly. Wow. And spelling was a big part of Noah Webster's thing. You know, before he published dictionaries, he published the Blue Back Spellers. And they were spelling books that were made uh, to be used in schools to teach kids how to spell. He sold millions and millions of copies at a time when there were, you know, actually only, I think, like 13 million people in the entire country. He also wanted to change the way we did spelling in this country, right? Yes, and he did. In most cases, he wasn't fully inventing the new spellings, but he was, he, by including them in his dictionaries, he was, them. yeah, he was codifying them. Yeah, and some of them, some of them really became established and others did not. Like what did? Well, like center within, you know, the, all those E-R-R-E, the oh, British theater. R-E, theater. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what ones didn't stick that he was hoping for? Well, you know, he wanted ache to be spelled A-K-E, which would be so nice if it were. Yeah, right. You know, like it would make the aching a little bit less, I think, <laughs> yeah. if it were easier to spell, but it's not. Soup, he wanted to be S-O-O-P. All that makes sense. Yeah. Women, W-I-M-M-I-N. Oh, I think a lot of people could get behind that spelling. Yeah. Already changing the spelling again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about the spelling we do have for women, though, is that I, I believe it is the only word in the English language where the letter O says I. Right. Yeah. In here, there is... It's a cabinet of curiosities here at Merriam-Webster in Springfield with Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. These are cute. Webster's new handy dictionary. This is like a cut-down portable version of a dictionary. In the history of lexicography, there has been a challenge as we have moved from that 1806 dictionary to the 1828. It's two volumes. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, oh, it's like this. You know, this was the next version. Like this a thing big, right fat here. dictionary like you think of when you think of a dictionary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was two volumes because that's just much easier to actually print. But this book is not portable or affordable. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. So when George and Charles Merriam bought the rights to Noah Webster's Dictionary, one of the really smart business moves that they made was to cut it down and to get it into a single volume and to lower the price dramatically. The abridged dictionary. <laughs> well, it, it actually the, the, it covered the same vocabulary. Wow. So it was cut down in other ways. And there are lots of tricks that um, dictionary makers know to ensure that something is smaller. So you can see there are big margins here, oh, right? right? You can just you tighten things up. You revise your definitions so that they are shorter phrases. And throughout the history of lexicography, really until this current century, it has always been really important to the lexicographer to keep everything as concise as you possibly can. Because the language is never shrinking. It's always expanding, and you always want to explain as well as you can, but you have to constantly be fighting that impulse for expansiveness with the need to keep things portable and affordable. Mm -hmm. But in this century, we don't have to do that anymore because an electronic medium is actually the perfect venue for any kind of reference work. That's you know? why like every year there's a press release that Merriam-Webster from here in Springfield has like 800 new words that have been added to the dictionary that year or what. Yeah, yeah. And now we can put in usage notes and we can put in lots of examples. I mean, we can just go on and on. One thing that's amazing too, Emily Brewster, is that 
Merriam-Webster's online dictionary is free, and that's part of what saved the economic base of the dictionary, right? The fact that you at Merriam-Webster rolled out there with the first free dictionary kind of was a game changer. I wasn't around when that decision was made, but I know that it felt risky at the time, right, to put this content that costs us a lot to put together, to put it online for free. But that decision was made by John Morse, the president of Merriam-Webster at the time. And it, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a very, very, very wise decision. Because rather quickly, some other dictionaries of note basically folded or were incorporated into other bigger dictionaries, right? Well, it was a longer process than that, but you know, the dictionary business has always been pretty small. It's very expensive to write dictionaries. It takes a lot of effort. People have to be specially trained, and um, yeah, and you don't, you know, you can't get a degree in it. In writing dictionaries? Yeah, there's no like lexicography degree. Huh, what's your degree in then? <laughs> Mine happens to be in linguistics and philosophy. Close enough. <laughs> that seems pretty close. <laughs> but actually, any background is useful in writing a dictionary because a dictionary includes words about everything, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a science background, that's great. If you have a computer background, that's great. What you have to have to be a lexicographer is really a facility with language and the desire and ability to sit and think about a single word for hours on end, which, boring. Not, yeah. boring as all get out to me. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a couple words I can think of that I would like to ruminate on, none of which I can say on the radio. Seeing that it's Wednesday, it's weird that I remember this now. There's an anime series about them building a new dictionary, which ends up being really fascinating, especially because, like, it's Japanese, so they're looking into, like, all of the history of certain characters and, how, like, the different readings of certain characters, like, and how it delves into, like, what stays and what doesn't is really kind kind of fascinating. I can't believe I just did that because it's Wednesday and I'm like, oh, hey, look, anime relations. Yeah. <laughs> Wednesdays we nerd out, or, and I think we're going to continue to do so, including with the word nerd, Emily Brewster, resident worship for Merriam-Webster. Nerd! I love that there's all these dictionaries and a Bible. Did he write well. the Bible too? <laughs> no, but he thought it was incredibly important. And um, here's an interesting fact. The Collegiate Dictionary has sold in its history, and the first one was 1898. The Collegiate Dictionary has sold more copies than any other book besides the Bible. We're number two. (laughs) Go Springfield! Popping in here. We're going to go upstairs next, but I meant to grab these for you before you arrived. Whoa. Merriam-Webster swag. Look at that. That's cool. A red hat with white lettering. But this one has a very well-scripted MW on it. I know. This is wonderful. Like, you'll show up at rallies and people will be so confused. (laughs) And I will be so happy to confuse. Well, what's interesting, and I know you don't do this as part of your job at the dictionary, Emily Brewster, but Merriam-Webster's Twitter feed has had to defend against people who wear red hats with white lettering frequently the type of words that come into the dictionary, including a lot of socio-political words that people take umbrage with for one reason or another. The dictionary's job is not to advocate for this word over that word. What does Merriam-Webster do and how does it view its role in that discourse when it gets attacked on social media for adding transgender words and things, also different types of sexualities and things like that? Yeah, the objections to what goes into a dictionary have existed since dictionaries have existed, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not a new phenomenon at all. Our job is to catalog the members of the English language 
more specifically, the, the ones that are truly established, the ones that have some kind of currency in the culture and in written works especially. In theory, we also want to catalog, you know, any word, but you gotta, you gotta keep your scope somewhat narrow, mm -hmm. otherwise you will never get anything done. But, right, by entering a word, we're not advocating that anybody use this word. The dictionary is a safe place to find out what words mean. So there are all kinds of terrible words in dictionaries, words that my children are not allowed to use, mm -hmm. especially slurs, for example, right? right? Like, you may not call this person this. Here's where you can go to find out what that word means. Right. If somebody calls you that, this is what they're saying, mm -hmm. right? So a dictionary's job is definitely to tell people about the words that they're going to encounter when they're out and about and uh, you know what those words mean and how they're used and what kinds of connotations they have in some cases so that's our job how do you decide to separate the wheat from the chaff as it were when it comes to words not every single word that gets used on Twitter goes right into the dictionary what's the process by which a word gets in there we're looking for evidence that a word is established, and we do that by looking at where it's found. So if it's only been found in newspapers in the past three weeks, it's not going to be entered. But if Unless it's, it's like COVID-19. That one, land speed record. 34 days, yes, <laughs> yes. And that is the fastest that any word has ever made it from coinage to publication in our dictionaries. But the, you know, if you looked at where it was being used, the fact that the World Health Organization put out a press release and that there were major implications of this disease around the world, it, it was very clearly a word that was not going anywhere. Yeah. Before COVID-19 got into the dictionary, the word that did it most quickly was AIDS. Wow. So similarly, a word that has kind of a, you know, its, its pedigree is clear, the reason for its existence is clear, its staying power is very apparent, even if a cure had been found in a short period of time, it had already made such an impact on so many people's lives that it's, you know, it was undeniably a word that, that was fully established in the language just very, very quickly. So what you're saying is that illnesses get fast-tracked. I hope no more words get into the dictionary that fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, maybe some miraculous kind of uh, source of energy that has no downsides whatsoever. That I'm for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bring us cold fusion. I bet that's already in the dictionary. Yeah. More of our tour of Merriam-Webster and Springfield next Wednesday on the show. Did you donate to the NVPM Fund Drive yet? Text us and let us know why New England Public Media is important to you at 800-639-9120. You can tell us which Sanditon character you think we are. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. Let's dig into the email bag. It's exciting to hear that Monty has moved from WHMP WRSI to NEPM, all my favorite Western Mass radio stations. Will he still be covering the Northampton Spelling Bee? Hopefully he will continue Monty's march. By the way, I believe the Loud Music Festival was purchased by WBCN, the famous Boston radio station, and they moved the festival to Boston. It died out a few short years later. People in Northampton created the Louder Festival to replace it. It also died out after a short run. Thank you. That was from Brian. That was in reference to our conversation with Jim Olson about the Back Porch Music Festival, which is taking over Northampton this weekend. And the answer to his other questions are yes and yes. 
And the other end of the spectrum, I enjoy much of NEPM's programming, and I appreciate the idea and goals of the fabulous 413, perhaps targeting a younger demographic. However, thus far, I am not a fan. Seems a bit superficial and shallow, catering to too diffuse of an audience. Also, it seems that whenever I sign in to listen, the story is about music, and music with a pretty limited fan base. I had hoped for something more along the lines of Vermont Edition or Brave Little State on Vermont Public. Sincerely, Craig Wells. Craig, I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 45. Kalise is almost the same age. Uh, we're interested in those things. So if you're calling us the younger demographic, thank you. Also, if I have the opportunity to talk to a young black woman in folk, I am going to take it. Gary says, a little over 20 years ago, I switched from commercial radio to 88.5 in my office. Everyone laughed and said, let's see how long this lasts. I work 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and have been so accustomed to classical music that now at 3 p.m. I find myself closing down for the day, thinking all things considered has started. I hope it does not take another 20 years for me to adjust the fabulous 413. We hope so, too. That's an email from Gary, uh, who I did find sent me over a dozen emails at my commercial radio station email address in the year 2022. So maybe he turned on 88.5 at 8 o'clock we're glad to have Gary back on here. Uh, we did have a request uh, from James to say, so Criterion, the Criterion movie collection, has a Michelle Yeoh collection this Be month. Still my Discuss heart. Discuss play. <laughs> uh, we don't have enough time to delve into the depths of how much we love Michelle Yeoh. But I, I know. But Super Cop, um, which is uh, with Jackie Chan. Definitely work, worth watching. Amherst, Heroic Trio. Amherst Cinema is uh, the airing the 4K uh, restoration of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I went to go see. Also went to go see uh, Elvis with Sam Bromell, who was on our show last week at Amherst Cinema. That so was last night. Go watch all the Michelle Yeoh things before she wins all the awards. Tomorrow on the show, McGovern with McGovern, a new regular Thursday segment, at least here, with Congressman Jim McGovern. Got a question for the congressman? Email us at thefab413 at nepm.org or send us a text, 800-639-9120. Plus a Glad Machine and a hate letter. Local band Glad Machine have their album release party this Saturday in Holyoke. We'll talk with the band. And my hate letter to the great American theater, a conversation with New York City queer icon Diana O, who returns to Smith to direct their new play, Extravaganza that satirizes the great American theater. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Homebody, and The Brass. Our director is Tony Dunn, who is our knight in shining armor. Our engineer is Betsy Cordes and secret food critic. Shh. Her baby loves pizza. Our technical team is Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and punk rock Dubé. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. See you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.